On today's pod, we have Dr. Joe McPhee. From small town, rural Nova Scotia to the big city, Dr. Joe McPhee has always been trying to understand the simplest things in life so that we can better understand our place in life. With a real passion for the undergraduate experience, Joe is finding new ways to engage students about microbiology and the way we see our life and existence. So, please lean in and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Joe McPhee. All right, everybody, welcome back to the pod again today. We now have a, a, a colleague of mine who you will have recognized teaching some courses or you will have interacted many times, and that is uh, Dr. Joe McPhee. Joe, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. So tell me about your role at, at Ryerson. So not necessarily so much in the deep thing, but what do you study? What's your area of expertise? And tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So I'm a, I trained as a microbiologist. And so that is what I teach. So since I've been here, I've taught a graduate course on host microbe environment interactions. I also had the opportunity to develop a whole new course called Medical Microbiology. It's a pretty large course. You usually get 100 to 130 people in that. And then I also teach the Microbiology 2, which is an intermediate level microbiology class. And then in addition to that, I supervise some graduate students in my, my research lab at Mars, and my research interests are mostly on bacterial behavior, bacterial signaling, and how bacteria become resistant to host molecules. Very cool. And you just use a key word there that segues nicely because I know that you identify as a microbiologist now, but you actually got your undergraduate degree as a chemist. So <laughs> what, where, let, let's talk about the backstory a little bit. So hometown, where's hometown, first of all? So hometown is a very rural part of Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. It's called Evanston. I don't even think this town is on a map. Uh, it's maybe... <laughs> two or 300 people total. So I grew up in a very small rural area. I thought all of Cape Breton was rural actually. So, so to say that you have a town. I mean, by, just... by the standards of where I live now, yes, that is 100% true. <laughs> um, but okay. yeah, you're right. I went to uh, Nova Scotian University called St. Francis Xavier. Always liked science in you know middle school, high school, and kind of knew that I was going to do something with that when I went to school. And so I enrolled in a, a program first that was just a straight chemistry majors program. And in third year, so at that university, you had to declare your, you had to basically find your honors thesis supervisor by the end of second year. It was a very unusual kind of system. And so once you did that, you were kind of committed to a certain path. And so I chose chemistry early because I didn't take a microbiology class until third year. And I fell in love with it pretty immediately. But I also loved not spending an extra year in undergrad. <laughs> and so I stayed in my chemistry sort of trajectory, but I switched my major from just being a straight chemistry major to actually end up doing a double honors degree in chemistry and biology. So this love of uh, microbiology then took you where after your undergrad? Yeah, so after undergrad, I, I didn't even know that you could do graduate school until I was almost finished my undergrad. So I was the, my sister and I were the first people in our family to go to university. So we don't have a, a long history of, you know, university education. I think either of my parents, my parents didn't finish high school. 
that was pretty common in their, in their day in that area. And so then when I went to graduate school, I was looking for people who I thought were doing interesting stuff. I asked a few questions of my undergraduate microbiology professor and she told me, gave me a few names and I just kind of emailed those people and told them what I was looking for. And that took me all the way across the country. So I did a PhD at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And so what brought you, how did, how did you transition from finishing your PhD in Vancouver to coming to Ryerson? Oh, I see. That pretty winding journey, right? So if I told you that I had a master plan to be a PI, uh, I would be a liar. Uh, <laughs> that, that is not, that, that was not what I thought. In fact, when I started graduate school, I wasn't even planning to do a PhD. So I thought I was going to do a master's degree first and then do uh, an MBA or something and become some, you know, biotech CEO. That didn't pan out because I, when I got into graduate school, I really loved the actual science. Um, and so then I transferred into a PhD program and then sort of leaving a PhD, you know, the next step was like, well, what's next? And so the next step was to do a postdoctoral fellowship. So I went to New York, Stony Brook specifically. So Stony Brook is maybe 50 miles from New York city or what we call that 80 kilometers from New York city. And I did a postdoc there and then wanted to come back to Canada. I did a second postdoc, not too far from here uh, in Hamilton at McMaster university. And both of those postdocs were, were looking at, you know, bacterial behavior, more pathogens associated with food poisoning and things like that. I really love doing bench work. I love doing research. And then I started applying for professor positions and, you know, I was lucky enough to get a position here at Ryerson. And I believe you joined us in 2014. Is that correct? Uh, I was hired in 2014, but I started uh, my position in January 2015. And we are so glad that you did find this position here. Did you ever, you, you went from St. FX, Cape Breton, St. FX, and then to Vancouver. Did you ever, and then you were in big cities ever since. Did you ever have a, any problem transitioning? That's a good question. I mean, I think, yeah, I'd always grew, you know, even the university I went to is quite a small school. I think enrollment when I was there was a little north of 3,000 people. It's bigger now, it's closer to 5,000, but very small school, right? And it's in a very rural kind of farm, used to be a farming town. Now the university probably is the biggest employer in, in the town where St. FX is. What I didn't tell you, between, uh, I guess, third and fourth year, I got a summer internship at a, a lab at the University of Alberta doing, what was it? it was, I was doing more chemistry stuff, to be honest. Uh, it was capillary DNA sequencing. So that was before next-gen sequencing, the lab basically developed analytical techniques for solving biological problems. So I spent a summer in that lab, and I just fell in love with cities, right? And so Edmonton is a city of, I guess, a million people, uh, certainly bigger than anywhere I had been up till that point. And then I moved to Vancouver, and then I moved to New York, and then finally Toronto. So I've been a city boy ever since. Yeah, very cool. And did you, when you were a kid, did you know, like, I mean, did you, what did you want to be? Like, I mean, you already said that you didn't know you were ever going to be a professor that wasn't on the radar. In fact, grad school wasn't on the radar until you were almost done undergrad. What, what, <laughs> what did you want to, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Yeah, it's a good question. I had a, I didn't really know, right? I mean, I think kids always have this infatuation with, you know, being, being a firefighter, being a, a cop, you know, I didn't have a lot of role models in any technical field. So I didn't know until I went to university that any of these things were options. And in fact, I think 
if you asked me in early high school, was I even going to go to university? I didn't know that I was going to. My older sister had gone to university. She's about seven years older than I am. She was in university then. And she was like, no, you're too smart to not go to university. So she kind of told me I would and I obliged. Yeah, I don't really know. I, I don't have any recollection of having a really strong passion for anything. I always loved books. I loved reading. I liked learning. But I didn't know that any of those were really careers, right? I thought they were hobbies. Yeah. And so I guess you already mentioned, Antis, you were a good student then. So that sort of helped move things forward. Were you yeah. a good student when, when you were doing your undergraduate degree too? I was never a terribly motivated student. So I was a good student in the sense that I got good grades, but a pretty lazy student. I think academics came pretty easily to me, but I, I don't know if I would get into graduate school now, <laughs> right? So I think, I think competition is a lot more fierce than it, than it was back in the, in the you know, late 1990s. Yeah. I don't know the answer, right? I was always happy to take the, you know, I take the B, the B plus rather than work 10% harder and maybe <laughs> get an A. I, I, I had some friends who were very sort of driven and hardworking. You know, it was my first time away from home. I was, you know, 19, 20 years old. I liked to party a lot. I did a lot of that uh, instead of <laughs> being, being a really good student. We'll talk about how you developed your, your, your beer habit a little bit later on. And not habit, oh. that's not the right way to say it. Your, your experience, your forte. Uh, hobby, um, sure. Yeah. Um, did you, I guess, keeping one of the things that you said, that, that when you don't see a lot of options, but you're willing to keep an open mind, a lot of options always present themselves. And so I think that's cool how you have kept that open mind, even though you didn't have the role models, you didn't have necessarily the exposures to build on. But you and, and preconceived notions, but you were open and minded enough that when something did come your way, you took it. So that that's a yeah, absolutely. Lesson. I mean, you know, I think being, you know, that was part of because we we you know we grew up in again this rural area. No, it was a pretty you know call it lower middle class, right? So not a, not a ton of money rolling through the rolling through the house or even through the community. The the economy of the town was based on a pulp mill. That was the main sort of local employer. So there wasn't a ton of money rolling around in that community. But uh, so you always had to kind of have an eye out for opportunity. That was something that I got from my sister, actually, who was pretty good at always keeping an eye out for, for, you know, opportunities that you might not have known existed. Yeah, she sounds like a real good role model, actually, in your life so far. We have that question coming up later. What's, so tell us about, let's do a little bit of a deep dive into your research so that, but again, keeping it in sort of an undergraduate level, like what, sure. why, why is what you study important? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people think of, you know, bacteria as these gross little things that make you sick. And that is true. <laughs> that is a big part of, of why we are interested in them. So most of the microbiology that I, that I do in my research lab is around the behavior of, of bacteria that cause infections. So in my PhD, I worked on a bacteria called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. It causes infections uh, of the lungs, in the lungs of people with mostly with cystic fibrosis. But if you get a burn over a large proportion of your body, Pseudomonas also likes to infect those areas. And I was just, it, you know, it was an amazing organism. Worked on it for, you know, over six years of my life, basically figuring out how that thing saw the world. Because bacteria, although they're, you know, we don't tend to think of them as having any, we think of them as being very simple. And even when people talk about life forms or talk about biology generally, we always put humans at the top, right? The most important species, the most evolved species. 
bacteria these little simple bags of chemicals. Um, and that's not really true at all. Um, they're actually very complicated and the way that they behave is complicated. And so I got interested in them because they are complicated, but they're, you know, you can answer important questions using them as a model system. So I moved on to other types of bacteria, mostly ones that cause what we call enteric disease. So these are things that cause food poisoning. So I worked on Yersinia. So this is the bacteria that caused the Black Death. It's probably the what it's best known for. And Black actually, when I moved to when the, you say Black plague, Death, yeah, the Black okay. Death, the plague. Yeah, so yeah. Yersinia yeah. pestis is the cause of the plague. And we tend to think of that as sort of a you know a thing that we solved sometime in 1665, but that's not true. Right? So plague is still a going concern. There are about 100, 100 to 200 cases of plague a year in North America. And there are thousands of cases of plague in parts of Asia. So it's not gone. And it's a really fascinating bacteria because of, because of its sort of role in sort of human, you know, human history. When I moved to McMaster, I started working on other bacteria so these are bacteria that cause, rather than causing sort of acute disease, when I say acute disease, I mean, you clearly know you're sick. These are bacteria that are not quite your friend and not quite your enemy. They're your, your frenemy. And so depending on the environment that the patient uh, or the, the person with them finds themselves in, and that environment is, you know, a role, there's a role for the, the genetics of the host or the types of food that the host eats these bacteria can cause disease and you know what they're principally associated with is sort of causing or worsening inflammatory bowel disease. And so that's what we've been working on in my lab for, for quite a while. And we're moving now into other, other types of bacteria as well. So bacteria that cause urinary tract infections, bacteria that cause really acute food poisoning. And these are all, I should say, strains now of E. coli. So most undergrads think of E. coli as a, you know, a very safe organism. You usually work with it in introductory microbiology labs. And a lot of E. coli is very safe, but a lot of E. coli is very dangerous. So I like that idea that the same organism, depending on the genes it has, can exhibit two totally different behaviors. Yeah, that's cool. And I, one thing you, I mean, it's, it's not quite related, but you know, bacteria is what you study now, but you're also a bit of an expert when it comes to to fungi or yeast, and and, <laughs> yeah, I, and a lot of people won't, won't <laughs> but people won't know that you are actually like a certified beer judge. Like you are kind of a beer expert. How did you? I mean, I I enjoy beer too, but only now am I starting to brew it and actually understand anything. But where did this fascination from the, the that that depth of knowledge come from in ter- in terms of beer? Yeah, so that's a, you know, that's an interesting story, or may, I, you tell me if it's interesting, it's at least a story. When I was in grad school, you know, as people in grad school do, we, we drank a lot of beer, and I visited a website, it was basically a beer rating website, so this was a website that people would go on to, to discuss the sort of flavors, aromas, and, you know, just interesting things about different types of beer, and I got pretty hooked on that because I'd always you know, I've always been kind of a foodie, like I like different types of food, I like how food tastes, and I like the process of cooking food. And I always had through even through my my undergrad, and certainly through graduate school, I got more and more into different types of cooking. So I got into this as a relatively inexpensive hobby, right, compared to I think drinking wine, certainly drinking beer is a lot cheaper than drinking wine. 
And I kind of got why are into we, that. Why are we, Joe, why are we only comparing those two things? <laughs> well, <laughs> just kidding. Go ahead. Uh, Sorry. So, you know, I got into it just sort of finding a, a new vocabulary for how to describe flavors of beer. You know, are they, are they hoppy? And if you say hoppy, well, what type of hops do different types of hops have different types of flavors? How would you describe them? So some of them are really floral. Some of them are really piney. Some of them are citrusy. Some of them are really tropical, right? And so all of those different flavors basically come out of the ingredients that you use. And as I started to learn more about commercial beer, I wanted to try to make my own. And then I was a graduate student working in a microbiology lab on the edge of campus. That last part's really important because people didn't poke around and ask a lot of questions about what we were doing. I don't think you could get away with this now, right? So this is the early, early 2000s. I, we brewed at the lab. So we would go outside and, you know, we had a, a storage area in, in one of the, the, the rooms at that research center. We would store all of our brewing equipment in there and we would ferment in the, in the building. And so we started, it was myself and another graduate student, another PhD student in the lab. We started just making beer as a hobby. And then I got really into it. So different types of beer have different types of ingredients and even different types of yeast, right? So they're not sort of like the bacteria that I work on in my lab. The different strains of yeast that you use have very different behaviors. And so we learned things like, you know, even something as simple as taking a yeast and growing it at two different temperatures uh, with everything else being exactly the same, you can get very different final products out of it. And I just love that process. And, th and that's really me being selfish because I'm having now going into this beer making adventure. I always like to hear what it is that, that like the, the cool little things. I guess yeast being a fungi still count as a, as microbiology though, right? Because it's oh, it absolutely. exactly. So you're yeah, still, actually, you're a lot of, a lot of beer, you know, beer before we got into modern beer making. So, you know, pre- sort of pre-1900, beer had a lot of bacteria in it as well. They weren't the type of bacteria that would make you sick, but they certainly changed the flavor of the beer that was made. And there's kind of a resurgence of that now. There's people are interested in a lot of these more sour beers. Those are made sour, not with yeast. Those are sour because of bacteria. And that was, you know, before we got to learning about single cell microbiology, which is how most beer is made now, most beer had both. It had both yeast and bacteria in it. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit here. So what do you like best about your job? Oh, what do I like best about my job? That's pretty easy actually. So I like the students the best, right? Because I, they always have a new way of looking at things. And so, you know, you're constantly surrounded by basically new, the potential at least for new knowledge to be created. And that's kind of what most of us get into research for. But all of that new knowledge can't just come from me, right? You know, I'm a 43-year-old 43 43-year-old 43 guy. It comes from the interaction that you have with, with trainees and with, and with students. And so that's the part that I like the best. Cool. Seeing them at the, at the stage where they, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not totally jaded <laughs> by, by, by their life experience to this point. And they're just so fresh at sort of looking at, looking at problems from a, a different point of view, I think, than I might approach it. Awesome. What do you like least about your job? Oh, so that is also easy. <laughs> uh, and it is. So the part I like the least is actually all of the, it's all of the process that you have to make sure is in place to keep people both like safe and keep them on sort of a, 
a path to learning. And so a lot of that, you know, the way that you do that is by creating processes. So creating protocols, following protocols, um, ensuring that students get feedback that is actionable, right? I don't like a lot of the, the administrative side of the job, right? So I don't like reconciling bills. I don't like filing paperwork of any sort, but it's all important, right? So, you know, I, I consider myself among the luckiest people on earth to be able to do this job. So even though I dislike administration, you know, administ- not administration in the, you know, people who are administrating, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, <laughs> Yeah, you got to be careful, the, Joe. <laughs> I'm talking about the administration that anybody has to do to keep a, a process moving forward. I don't love that part. But that's a very small price to pay to be able to work with students every day. Amazing. And what inspires you the most about your job? Inspires me the most about my job. You know, it's, it's sort of, you see this more with graduate students, I think, than with undergraduates. But when a graduate student really, there's a certain point where a, a project goes from being sort of an idea that you had one day, or hopefully over a series of days, hopefully you thought about it for more than a day, <laughs> where, a, where a student really decides that they're going to own it right? And they tell you something that you might say, I'm not sure that's a good idea. And they think, ah, what is McFino anyway? I'm just going to do this myself and see what happens. That sort of shift from a student being somebody who is taking direction from a professor to where a student becomes somebody who is doing their own investigation and asking their own problems, that is the best part. Like when, when that happens, it's, it's a, an amazing experience. For sure. What I like is when they actually tell you that, or you tell them that it's not going to work and they said, no, I've already done it. (laughs) That's right. So you're like, that's even better. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I remember exactly when that happened for me as a graduate student, right? I can remember a conversation with my, with my boss and I told him what I was thinking and he was like, eh, he's like, you know, that's, that's a kind of a dumb idea. It's definitely not going to work. And then I, you know, went and did it and it turned into sort of two, sort of two papers among my most cited papers were, was the, you know, the outcome of that conversation. Yeah. Those are good moments. What do, yep. what, uh, what do you believe are the most important transferable skills that these students you work with should have and why? Either, you know, before or after your, their interaction with you, but what do you think are the, some of the more trans, important transferable skills? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important transferable skill is really like communication. Students may never have to do in my lab, we do antibiotic susceptibility testing, pretty, you know, field specific type of thing. But no matter what job you have, you're going to have to communicate with somebody, right? You're going to have to communicate with other members of your team. You're going to have to communicate with the public. You're going to have to communicate with a manager or a, a person who you supervise and different ways of communication, right? So there's this communication like we're doing now, we're having a conversation, but that's a very different type of communication than if you were say writing a a report for some very technical thing you were doing versus communicating with the public, right? Because you're working on a problem that might impact the community in which you live. I think learning how to calibrate the way you approach a problem and the way you describe a problem is really important. And that's not just in science, right? That's in, in, in everything that we do in a university. I think communication is the most important part. And that would be to be able to communicate with everybody at all levels, regardless of the technical detail or specification. That's right. You know, like we use a lot of technical language in science and this technical language, we use it because 
it's doing a job, but it doesn't always have to be there, right? You, there's a, an activity that people will sometimes do at microbiology conferences and it is, you know, explain your work using only the 1000 most common words in the English language. And so you have to, you know, it can wow. be very challenging, right? But it's useful because it lets you boil down, you know, what is the big picture concept that you are trying to explain? What is the, the one most important point that you would like somebody to take away from a conversation with you? And that's what I think this kind of public facing aspect of communication needs to, needs to always consider. It's like, what does this person you're talking to need to know about why you do what you do? The technical language can get in the way of that, right? It's important in some environments, but it, um, it can also be used as something to hide behind. Um, and I think sort of, you know, learning how to communicate with different audiences is really important. And it's something sure. I try to integrate sure. into all of my, um, all of my classes. Okay, so now if you're putting your faculty member hat, recruiting for your, you know, a student for your lab, what skill, maybe it's technical now as well as transferable, are you looking for in those students that approach you and say, Dr. McPhee, I was interested in joining your group this summer. What, what are you looking for in that person? I'm not looking for any skill, <laughs> right? Not to say that you know, there's, no, there's no sort of one answer, but I'm looking for, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a spark, right? Like a reason why somebody is interested in the problems that you work on. And this is some advice, right, for students who might be going to interview a faculty member, whether it's for a, you know, a volunteer position in their, in their group or maybe you want to do a thesis with them. It helps before you've sat down with that person to at least know what they work on, right? This is pretty yeah. low-hanging fruit, right? Yeah. So if you're going to go talk to somebody, you should have an idea of what they do before you sit down. You don't need to be an expert. I don't think you need to spend a ton of time on it, but you should, you know, read a website because that's the type of skill, you know, if you go interview for a job at some point, they're going to want to know that you have done a little bit of homework before you come into a, so, but I'm looking for a real interest, right? So, you know, if I ask a question like, you know, what interests you about microbiology? There should be an answer to that question, right? It shouldn't be the first time that somebody has thought about that. So that's what I'm looking for, right? Is a little, a little spark of interest in the type of subject matter. I mean, I think the technical stuff is useful, but I, you know, we can teach people technical stuff. That's pretty straightforward. You can't teach somebody to be engaged. And you can't yeah. teach somebody to be interested. That comes out of their own desires and their own passion. Yeah, completely agree. All right, so now we're switching to the uh, rapid fire stuff. And yeah, so let's, let's get into it. So what factoid do my colleagues know least about me? Oh, the least. That you're, that you're willing to share. <laughs> so how about in, in high school, I toyed very seriously with becoming a Catholic priest. Oh. <laughs> that I would never have guessed, but I am writing it down. Uh, that, 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 was, that was a while ago. That was a while ago. Why? 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 Is there a, yeah, is there a short answer to that? <laughs> uh, there, there's a long answer to that. There's no short answer okay. to that. Okay. Yeah. Well, then we, we know your favorite hobby, so we, can, we'll, we will definitely <laughs> dig deeper, maybe. What famous per person, current or otherwise, would you like, most like to go to dinner with and why? So... I mean, it's kind of pretty on brand, but I think, you know, Louis Pasteur would be somebody who I would love to have dinner with. You know, he sort of founded a whole field of bacteriology, and that is sort of the space I work in. He was also not very nice, right? And he was willing to put a lot of people into danger in order to test some of his more radical ideas around, you know, vaccination and vaccinology. And 
you know, we have this, this idea of people sort of the, you know, the great thinkers in, in history, right? But some of the things that those people did are incredibly morally suspect. And I would like to probe some of those less considered parts of those people's life history. So asking more sort of difficult questions about the things I did that you would certainly look askance at now compared to the things that everybody kind of knows about them, right? Yeah. And plus he was in that very nice area of the French German border where there'd be great wine and great beer. So oh, absolutely. The, the menu, the menu in Strasbourg is, is quite fantastic. The, me- the menu so, would be great. Yeah. So what is your favorite food, Joe? Well, anybody who has seen me in person, it'd be hard to narrow it down to one. <laughs> <laughs> so I like, I like all sorts of food. And you did, and you did say you were a foodie earlier. So I'll, I'll, let, I'll give you that one. What okay. was your, what's your, and, I, and I think I'll give you the next one too. What is your favorite <laughs> beverage? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's beer without a question or a doubt. Although I've been getting more, so since we've been on, you know, in, this, in, in COVID times, I live in a much smaller apartment than probably some of my, my colleagues do. So I don't actually do any brewing anymore, but I have been making a ton of kombucha in the last three months, which is another fermented product, non-alcoholic, but also delicious. So I've been playing around with some of that type of stuff. Very cool. What's your favorite color? Blue. Okay. Complete this sentence. If I was not a professor at Ryerson, I would like to be. I would like to be. That is not a rapid fire question because I've never, (laughs) that is a tough question actually, Brian. (laughs) What what would I like to be? I mean, it would probably be something else in the technical, in the technical field. I mean, I'll be, you know, total, I would, I would be a brewer. Let's say. I would be a brewer. And then, and then you could be your own biotech CEO, which comes full circle to something you said earlier. What is something yeah. in the top, what is the something in the top 10 of your bucket list? So top 10 of things I have done or haven't done? Uh, haven't bucket list, so things you would like to do. Things I would like to do. Ah, well, I would like to live in Europe for a year. That's probably going to get checked off my bucket list when I go on sabbatical in a couple of years. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's useful every once in a while to sort of, you know, move. It, it forces you to challenge yourself and to learn new things. And I think as an academic, right, I've bounced around a lot from place to place and it's always super stressful for me, but usually the payoff is worth it. Right. So that'll be uh, we'll call that on my, on my bucket list, spending like a year nice. abroad. And having spent a year in Europe just recently, I can certainly attest to all of those things you just said. Who is or was your favorite role model? My favorite role model. That's another good question, Brian. Um, (laughs) It's hard to to pick one, right? Because I don't, you know, everybody you sort of interact with has little things that they do that you find useful. So it's really hard to narrow it down to a single person, right? Because I think every, yeah, you can learn something from everybody who you interact with. I mean, I can tell you that the person who I, well, this is, a, this is a good story, maybe. So, you know, I alluded to the, the fact that I never knew about microbiology until I took sort of a microbiology course in third year. And that is true. So my microbiology professor was a woman named uh, Dr. Lori Graham at St. Francis Xavier University. And she really encouraged me to sort of, you know, get into this field. She wrote me reference letters when I was going to graduate school. And you never really get a chance always to thank your people who've affected you in some way. But last year, I got really lucky because I had a student. She was actually doing an undergrad at St. Francis Xavier University, so the the university I did my undergrad at. 
But she lived in Toronto. That was her hometown. And so she actually spent her summer working in my lab, co-supervised with Lori back at St. Francis Xavier. So she went back to St. FX to write up her thesis based on work she had done in my lab. So it was really awesome because everything got to come full circle. So, you know, the person who got me into microbiology in the first place, we got to work together as colleagues, you know, 20 years after I left university. That's very cool. I like that story. I'm glad you uh, shared that. And that's Glory Graham. My name sounds familiar, but I don't, maybe I don't know why that name's not familiar. Okay. So what is your greatest achievement so far? Do we mean academically or in whatever, life? whatever personal, it could be personal, whatever you, whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, I think I've talked a lot about the academics I mean, I think it would be building a happy family in collaboration with my wife we were probably happier in the pre-COVID homeschool times, <laughs> but uh, I, I would consider that my, at least one of my, my biggest achievements, right? Excellent. And what would you say is your greatest failure? My greatest failure. Oh my God. <laughs> my, my, wife, my wife is sort of off camera with her hand up. Yeah. She, has list, she has a list oh, a mile long, I'm sure. <laughs> My greatest failure, I'll tell you about my greatest <laughs> experimental failure. So this is also in grad school. This is my most expensive mistake that I've ever made. We had a, a collaboration. We were trying to build a DNA microarray. So this is, you know, now we, we wouldn't do these experiments this way. Uh, technology has changed a lot, but we were trying to build a microarray for a bacteria called Pseudomonas. And we were collaborating with a company in Seattle. So I did went to grad school in Vancouver. So this was maybe three hours south of Vancouver, a company called Chiron, doesn't matter what they were called. And so we had sort of agreed to be sort of the hands to do a lot of the work to basically PCR amplify the, the 6,000 genes or the 5,500 genes that make up the Pseudomonas aeruginosa genome, purify those pieces of DNA, and then put them into plates, take them back to Seattle, and they were going to do the the printing of these pieces of DNA. And uh, <laughs> so we, we took a car, so we left Vancouver, went to spend a day with the company, and they were giving us this really expensive enzyme that we couldn't get in Canada. Can't remember the technical reasons for why we couldn't get it in Canada, but we couldn't. What I didn't know is that you can't just cross the border with $40,000 worth of material in the trunk of your car which somebody certainly should have told me because I was, you know, 20 nothing years old. Somebody should have told me. Uh, when, we, when we came back across the border, they had given us basically this enzyme that we were importing, as well as a large machine. So this machine cost, it was a, it's called a Tetrad thermocycler. Retail value in this thing is about $50,000. Okay. And we were taking it as a loaner to basically allow us to do the work. And we had no paperwork for any of this stuff. And so we got to the border and they said, are you bringing anything in? And we were like, yeah, we're bringing in some enzyme and a thermocycler. And the guy at the border is like, well, what is that? And I was like, well, well I'll just open the trunk. And I open the trunk and he looks in and he's like, do you have any paperwork? And I was like, why would I have paperwork? You know, I was so naive. And so I got, the, I got everything seized. I got my car seized. 
I got the enzyme seized. I got the, <laughs> the machine seized. And, you know, I had to call my lab, lab manager and be like, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm going to need you to drive to the border to pick me up because. Canadian Customs has all of the stuff that I went to get. So that is my, <laughs> that everything is worked scary. out. We, my, the lab spent a bunch of money getting the car and everything out of Hawk and it ended up being okay. But that was a very scary couple of days. So there's no problem that money can't solve. <laughs> what, what, Joe, what, what are you most, not about this particular thing, what are you most grateful about for? Oh, oh, so in, I mean, I'm most grateful for that. That's actually an easy question. So I'm most grateful for in my career, right? So I've had the support of, so I met my, my wife when I was just finishing undergrad. So we crossed paths sort of two months before graduation. And had no plan, certainly, to get to sort of get uh, involved in a relationship before I moved across the country uh, a month or two later. But did, and we've been together uh, ever since then. And it's very hard to do a job like academia without a supportive partner, right? And so she supported me all through grad school. She supported me through my postdocs, like moving multiple times. and was always committed to my professional success. I think it would be very hard to imagine a scenario where I got here without that support. I completely agree. Those, those people are really special and really important in all of our successes. What concerns you the most? What can you up at night? Oh, I mean, right now? <laughs> outside um, right now. Outside, oh, so sort of pre, pre-COVID. Yeah. So what keeps me up at night? I shouldn't say keeps me up at night. I mean, it's things I think about, right? So I think a lot about whether, you know, how as an individual you make the biggest impact that you can in sort of everything that you do, right? And I think about this when it comes to undergraduate education a lot, right? So I think Ryerson is, it's a really interesting place because it really does, um, I think, put a lot of emphasis on the undergraduate experience. Um, I went to a university where it was only undergraduates. There were no graduate students at that school. And so I really appreciate that point of view. And so things that keep me up at night are how do you ensure that everybody sort of in that experience is getting the best sort of you that they can get, right? Because we're all, you know, everybody is pulled in 20 different directions all the time. But when you're talking about undergrads, you know, you're facing a a room of people who you have so much, you only have a certain amount of time with them, right? You want to make sure that that time you have with them is as effective as it can be. And so I'm always trying to think about ways to make that interaction better and to make sure that they feel like they're getting good value for their, the hard-earned money that they are spending on that education. Awesome. And I'm sure they appreciate it too. What spot in the world do you most like traveling to? So that's someplace you've already been. So I've only been once, but I would go back in a heartbeat. New is New Zealand. New Zealand is an amazing country. It, it looks like all of North America was basically collapsed into two relatively small islands in the South Pacific and is absolutely beautiful. The people are amazing. The culture, you don't hear a lot about it, but you know, they have a really different sort of relationship, especially with their indigenous people. And I think that Canada can learn a lot from that, right? So in the last year, we've had a lot of strife. I shouldn't say the last year, (laughs) the last 400 years. Um, Canada had a pretty rocky pretty rocky relationship with its First Nations people. And I think New Zealand is a real 
is a way that we could learn a lot more about how to do things, how to do things better. Anyway, so that's like, you know, the, the social aspect of it, but it's absolutely beautiful country. I mean, we, we this is pre-kids, obviously, but my wife and I, just as I was finishing graduate school, we, we went to New Zealand for five weeks, rented a car and just drove around the North and South Island for, for that period. And it was amazing. I'd love to go back. Very cool. What is your most productive time of day? <laughs> uh, normally, I guess. There, there's no productive time of my day now. Um, <laughs> but my most productive time of the day is usually the, the pretty early morning. So, you know, I would, typically I would get up about five o'clock and I would work for two hours before my, my wife and my kids would get up. And that's a good time of day because you're usually alone. There's very few distractions. There's nothing on, there's nothing on the radio that holds much interest for me. And so you can just do quite a bit of nice, deep thinking and or writing or whatever it is that you're trying to get accomplished. Think as you get later, further and further into your day, you get distracted by, you know, other people's needs, the other things that you, you have to do, but that is definitely my most productive time of the day. Yeah. And what is your favorite hobby? It's, you know, food, food and beer, probably my favorite hobby. And they are very good pastimes. So what to, piece of advice would you give your second year self? Oh, oh, my second year self, I think the advice I would give is I would do a lot more networking, right? So I'm pretty, I'm pretty introverted, actually. People don't know that when you are public facing as like a professor is, but I, I am a pretty introverted person. And I would tell my second year self to just get out a lot more and just ask people questions. Even if you're not, you know, you don't, you know that you don't want to do the thing that that person does. You're usually going to get something interesting by talking to anybody. Right. And so my advice would be just to put myself out there a little bit more, go talk to, go talk to your professors, ask them about, you know, how they got to where they are, reach out to people who aren't professors, who aren't in academia, ask them how they got to where they are, you know, sort of questions and things like this. You know, I'm glad you, you know, kind of ask this question because it's, it's kind of meta, right? You're essentially doing the thing that I am advising people uh, to do, which is to talk to people. And this is, and I think it's one of the things too, when you do get a chance to talk to people, people don't realize that introverts can still excel because you're just asking somebody to tell you about their journey. And so you don't have to carry the conversation. You can just ask questions as you said. So it is a, I think it's a great piece of advice. Let's, you've alluded to COVID a few times. Let's talk just quickly about that before we wind up here. What, what is your biggest challenge so far with COVID? I think you may have alluded to it a few times. Mm. Yeah, so my biggest challenge with COVID right now is just making sure that my kids are okay. So I have, uh, I have two pretty young kids. I have a four-year-old son and a seven-year-old daughter. And so this has been a huge challenge for them because they have basically been removed from all of their social networks outside of the, the family, right? And so the family is an important, obviously it's a very important part of your social network, but it can't be your entire social network, especially for kids at their age, right? So making sure that they are as happy as they can be, so like feeling supported, feeling like they are, yeah, just kind of managing their stress level and their mental health has been the biggest challenge. And so what are your strategies for coping with your own personal mental health? How do you, how do you balance all of those things and, and stay sane? Well, you're implying that I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> and stayed so, sick, so, so. so what, what strategies successful or otherwise are you employing? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, right now we, we, we have a pretty, 
we have quite a bit of structure in our day, like more structure than I think we like. So we get up in the morning, the kids wake up around 7, 7.30, and we, we, I basically can't, I don't do any work related to my job before about noon. So we get up with the kids, we get them fed, dressed, then we just get outside. So usually it's like a bike ride or a trip down to, we live, we live right downtown. So we live at Young and Front Street. So we usually go for a walk to Sugar Beach or this area along the Esplanade, there's a bunch of green space that we can go to and they can just chase each other around. The parks are closed. They can't go into any of the playground equipment, but we're, we're still sort of getting out just to, you know, get them outside. We come back home, do their schoolwork. That usually takes about an hour and a half and then have lunch. And then I work, my wife and I both work in the afternoon. We'll usually work for, from about one to five, then dinner, wind the kids down for bed. And then after the kids go to bed, we usually work for another two or three hours after that before we, you know, eventually try to relax and unwind a little bit and then go to bed ourselves. Fair enough. And what, so, more, uh, so basically your... more, more, you know, more structure, I think is keeping the kids sane. Yeah. I think it's a good strategy. A lot of people are using a very similar strategy in different ways, of course, for different needs. What is your, what is your silver lining in this pandemic? So that's actually a good question. So I just, I mean, right before this call, I had a, you know, I was on a, a call with undergraduate microbiology instructors from across the country. It's really trying to think about what learning is going to look like in a, in an environment where we're not face to face. And I think, I think there are some real opportunities there for thinking about how to deliver a really high quality experience that is it, it just isn't going to be the same as, as what things are like when you're face-to-face -face in the class. You know, you sort of get a model for, for instruction when you start as a professor. What, what a lot of undergrads don't know is that most professors have no formal training in actually being an educator, right? So, you know, we learn from all of the experience that we've had, and then we go in front of the class and we, we talk about it. But I'm getting to sort of learn from colleagues who have really thought deeply about what education can and should look like and so engaging with some of that material has actually been pretty rewarding and I'm hoping to implement some of that in you know uh, when we get back into the into the digital classroom next year and that actually brings us full circle with something you that you that has been your path to success all this time which has been keeping your options open and remaining open-minded and just trying to to not be so traditional all the time and think you've got it all figured out in advance. And so oh, that's a perfect yeah. way. I don't, I don't have very background. many things. I don't have very many things figured out. <laughs> and honesty, honesty with yourself. That's also an important skill to have. So everybody out there in listening land, remember that Dr. Joe McVie, you heard it here first. <laughs> anyway, Joe, thank you so much. Uh, we're gonna have to have you back on the pod again maybe on a panel or a different sort of discussion, but we'll definitely have you back. I really appreciate your time though. Uh, and in the meantime, stay well and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Cause it sounds like you're, you're managing well. <laughs> I'm, I'm managing, but uh, thank, thanks for uh, inviting me on Brian. It's been, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your day and we'll talk to you soon, Joe. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.